Good evening. How's everybody doing? Good. Welcome to week six. I mean, we're, what, three more weeks to go? So I was just jokingly thinking it's like a third trimester, you know? Whoever's been there, Catherine, you've been here just a few times. It's like we're enduring. So that's awesome. Let's do just that. All right. Well, to start off, I wanted to share with you that in my preparation this week, as I was going and reading over and over through rather familiar passage of Scripture, I prayerfully asked the Lord to give me the eyes of the character of this Scripture. Um, So at the beginning of the study, when we were setting the stage, we uh, said that it is very important to read this particular book or any book of the Bible and keep in mind the original audience, right? But I want to take us deeper, and I want to invite us to prayerfully ask the Lord to give us the eyes of the characters of this story. What was it like for these people in this story on that day. Um, So I want us to actually realize something, as I did during my time of preparation when I did that. I realized something very simple, yet absolutely magnificent. It was my personal revelation, if you would, during the study. I realized that Israelites have actually experienced the redemption. And you see, ladies, I believe that our salvation, our redemption provided to us in Jesus Christ has and is meant for us to be experienced. And so that kind of brings us to an idea that we keep in mind throughout the study of this book, that the Exodus story is our story. So I truly hope that um, through the study of this particular book, we're all going to get encouraged to assess our redemption and that we will be prompted to share it with others. You see, just like the Passover, as we learned, was meant to be commemorated and celebrated right through the generations to come, uh, our salvation is to be commemorated and celebrated and be talked about uh, for the generations to come. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Last week, we saw Yahweh discrediting every Egyptian god, their false deities, as if answering Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? This week, we begin in chapter 11 with the warning of a final plague. So in verse 1, we read, follow with me in the text. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. So we see the finality and assurance of deliverance to come. As if we hear the Lord said, it will be done and it will be done as I said. Throughout the plague's narratives, we surely see as Moses continually mature in his role as the Israelites leader and as one who is called to act in the light of what the Lord promises, even though he does not know when and how exactly will the Israel be redeemed. So in the next verse, we see the Lord instructs Israel to ask for Egyptians 
silver, and gold, a fulfillment of what was promised at the burning bush. We read it in Exodus 3, uh, verses 21-22. And we also see that Moses was considered very great by both Pharaoh's servants and the people of Israel, which is yet another fulfillment of the promise given to him at the burning bush in verse um, 3, 12, and 15, chapter 3, 12, 15, when the Lord said, I will be with you. And so, ladies, I want to encourage and remind us all today that the same promise from the Lord stands truth for us today. And it is recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 20. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So just as Moses was on the mission from the Lord to deliver people, we as a new covenant believers are on the mission from the Lord to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. So in verse 4 and 8, we read the warning of the final plague given to Pharaoh. And so keep following with me in the text. Verse 4. And every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. So every firstborn literally includes every. And it does include the firstborn of Israel. We're not God to provide a way of salvation, right? Uh, so as we learn later, the battle is the Lord's, right? And so here we see the Lord giving a fatal blow in the, to the gods of uh, Egypt and to Pharaoh, who clearly represents Satan. This is a fulfillment of a prophetic warning that we read in Exodus 4.22. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refused to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. So let's read verse 7. But against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. It is noteworthy that again we see the distinction is being made between the Israel and Egypt. And we saw it from the very beginning, first in Exodus 3, 7, where Yahweh refers to Israel as my people for the first time. Then we saw it a bit later in chapter 5. And so we must remember that the distinction is made solemnly on the basis of a covenantal relationship, not anything that the nation has done or has deserved otherwise. And so simply put, our identity is the God we worship. Now, the phrase that we encounter in this verse 7, not even a dog snarl, is often um, explained as a proverbial expression, meaning that not only uh, should they suffer no actual harm, but no unfriendly sound should even be heard against, him, against them. However, interestingly enough, it is known that one of the Egyptians' principal deities was Osiris. Osiris was the Egyptian lord of the underworld and judge of the dead. He was a brother-husband to Isis, um, goddess that we learned about last week. And he was one of, of the most important gods of ancient Egypt. 
His name is interpreted as powerful and mighty. His son, Anubis, the barking Anubis, was the Egyptian god of mummification and the afterlife, as well as he was referred as the patron god of lost souls and the helpless. He is depicted as a muscular man with the head of a jackal dog. Anubis was known as king of the dead and was associated with eternal justice. So while there was a great cry throughout the land of Egypt because of the death in every house, among the Israelites there was no death. Consequently, no dog moved his tongue to howl for their calamity, nor could the object of the Egyptians' worship inflict any similar punishment to the worshipers of Yahweh. So just as we saw in the first nine plagues, so it is in the last one. Yet another false deity is discredited. Here again we see the idol acknowledged in the text of Scripture in order, in order to show its nullity and to express contempt for it, for its worshipers and for its worship which may serve, ladies, as a reference or an explanation of Moses' departure from Pharaoh in hot anger. It's the end of verse 8. So as we finish in chapter 11 with the final statement that Moses and Aaron had done everything that the Lord had said, and then Pharaoh was not to listen because the Lord has hardened his heart. And I know that this latter part is something that a lot of us have been wrestling throughout the studying um, of this uh, particular passage of Scripture, and I think it's really good. I think that it should be so. And there is much more, obviously, to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart as uh, first appears, and it just reminds us that God, ladies, wants us to dig deeper and think harder and um, Above all, to seek his guidance. And just as a reminder for all of us that anything that we encounter in Scripture must be interpreted in view of the entire Scripture. So let's press in. Now, verses 1 through 28 in chapter 12, we read about the instructions given to Moses and Aaron pertaining to the events of 10th plague as well as the description of how the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread will be celebrated. So let's break it down. Uh, chapter 12 um, opens with the instruction of the Lord to establish a new calendar. So verse 2 reads, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Well, listen to what one commentator says about it. This may not seem significant to us, but how we measure time is fundamental for how we look at life. Our calendars define the importance of the day to the entire culture, saying whether we should work, rest, or worship, or think about some great event in our past. This was especially critical as the Israelites left the powerful nation of Egypt, which had strongly influenced their thinking while they lived there. Egypt had a 12-month solar calendar that was entirely organized around the veneration of other gods, of their gods. Their year started in late June when the brightest star in the sky, Sirius, 
arose about the time of the flooding of the Nile. They spent five days in feasting and worship beforehand, pleading with their gods for good flood of the Nile and for good harvest that year. Each of the 36 10-day weeks of the year was dedicated to a different god. And in contrast, God instructed Israel to mark time by remembering their redemption from Israel. Their calendar no longer focused on idolatrous gods, but on permanently remembering the, true, the truth that God loves them so much that he freed them from slavery. And so every aspect of their calendar repeated this motive. End of quote. And so we will see that to be true as we continue studying through this book. So instituting a new calendar undoubtedly points uh, to a new beginning. So the Lord makes all things new to those whom he delivers, uh, whom he delivers from the bondage of Satan and takes him to be his people. And so at the time when he does this, it is the time of new beginning. This new beginning for Israel was appointed by God on the day that they left Egypt. Let's pick up in verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. It is very important to see that just as the plague will result in the death of, a, in the, death of the firstborn in every house, in Egypt, so Israel was given instruction uh, for the lamb to be sacrificed on behalf of every household. Also, it is implied that no lamb was too little for the family, but rather that the family could have been too little for the lamb, which simply points to the sufficiency of the lamb. It tells us that God is interested in each individual member of the family. Each person in each family is to receive the part of the lamb. Even as we talk about uh, the redemption of the nation, this account is clearly an account of redemption of the entire nation, yet every household and every member of the household had to participate. And so I believe that we cannot overlook this as we parallel it to our salvation. How many times, ladies, have you heard somebody uh, say that they're a Christian, and then, you know, when you ask and be like, you know, share how you came to know Christ, they simply tell you that, you know, they were born in a historically Christian nation, or they were born in a Christian household. I personally think it's not a rarity in this part of the United States, right? So um, it is shockingly true that many people imply that they're saved by simply belonging to a Christian nation or being born in a Christian household. But the truth is, no one is saved because he is a member of a nation or a family. 
So um, just like we see it actually in the account of um, uh, scripture uh, that they had to uh, partake lamb here in Exodus, like I said, for everyone in the family, we see this account later in the New Testament. It is chapter 16 in the book of Acts. Remember when we go through the account of a Philippian jailer? And it kind of says that he believed and his household believed. So did his household believe because he believed or not? It is clearly not so, right? The words that we read say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. So does that mean that you believe and your family will be saved? No. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and your household believe and you will be saved. But I believe, ladies, that our, by our personal salvation, the gospel is being preached in our families. And so the salvation has come to our households. What an encouragement. Let's now pick up in verse 5. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male, and you may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat. They are, they are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along, along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roast it over fire. So clearly the idea here is that the perfect lamb uh, points towards the Messiah. So listen what the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. In the New Testament, uh, we read the words of John the Baptist, um, that, who was speaking prophetically about Jesus, the Lamb of God, being sacrificed on the cross for our sin. So in John 1.29, we read, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And then later in the same chapter, in the same gospel, verse 36, we read, When he, John, saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. So let's go ahead and compare and just examine some close comparisons between the Passover lamb of Exodus and the ultimate Passover lamb, the sacrifice that the Lord will give of himself on behalf of sinful humanity. So we do see that the lamb was without blemish. And we do see in the um, scripture, 1 John 3, 5, 2 Corinthians 1, 5, 21, and many others that Jesus was without sin. Sin was not part of his nature. He did not inherit it. He had a sinless blood, and he, so which makes him positionally uh, sinless, and he led the life, and he had never sinned. So a year-old male, as a next characteristic, definitely points to Jesus being a young male, 
Um, he was. Um, he died for us in a rather young age. But what is also very interesting, I found a, an explanation that um, of the first year regarding to the lamb actually pointed to the idea that the male sheep had not yet known the female sheep. And that would kind of describe them as that, you know, uh, male of the first year. And so that also parallels to Jesus, as we do know that Jesus was not married and by no means did he have committed an adultery, right? So... Further on in the same verse, we see that he was slaughtered at twilight. And so uh, twilight was, um, has been um, taken to signify to be either at the time between sunset and the onset of darkness or from the decline of the sun until sunset. We know that in Deuteronomy 16, Moses had actually prescribed the time for sacrifice as in the evening at sunset. And according to Josephus, it was customary in his day to kill the lamb at about 3 p.m. So when we look at the account of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23, the account where the death of uh, Jesus is recorded, it says that this was the time when he died. And the last one uh, points to verse uh, 46 that I want to mention today, and it says that no bone, bones were broken. We also know that to be true from the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Um, you know, you're free to read it, but actually we know that the other um, people who were murdered by crucifixion had their legs broken, but not Jesus. Um, he died before they had to do that. So... Why Jesus, right? Why no other person or human's sacrifice will do? Well, clearly, because there is no other human being that has ever walked this earth who is without sin. But Jesus alone. And there is also no other life or death of a human being that has so many prophecies fulfilled. I have found that it is... Um, about 351 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So ladies, it is safe to say that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Also from the uh, verse we just read um, previously, one very interesting thing worth noting is that the whole congregation, the whole assembly participated if we take this and apply it as a spiritual truth for us, isn't that true that it was the sin of all of us that had put Jesus and nailed him on that cross? We also see here that each head of the house killed their own lamb. There was nothing between God and the head of the household but the Passover lamb. And there is, ladies, nothing today between us and God but Jesus Christ. So again, we are reminded of a beautiful parallel and that Exodus story is our story. So verse seven speaks about applying the blood of the slaughtered animal. Why blood and what is blood? Looks like the only portion of the sacrificed lamb that was to be used or applied was blood. Everything else worried has to be consumed. So um, Leviticus 17.11 says, 
for the life of a creature is in the blood. So blood, in an essence, is life. So the ultimate symbol of life was to stand on the way of death on that horrific night. And in verse 13, we even read that blood was called a sign. It says, the blood should be a sign for you on the house where you live. So no blood applied, death comes. If the blood is applied, death has already took place. So blood on the doorpost made an angel of the death pass by, and blood on our hearts by believing in and receiving the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who has already died on our behalf, makes the angel of death pass by. And just as the Israelites were instructed to apply the blood on the doorpost with hyssop, which, by the way, they had to do it in faith. Do you, like, pick up that the whole story, that the whole thing, that they obeyed and did everything, they were acting in faith. And so the same applies to I by applying the blood of Jesus to our hearts by faith. So hyssop is our faith. Ladies, we do have an awesome God. Amen who sacrificed his own son on our behalf that we may have the redemption of sin and that we may have eternal life. Christ didn't die as a martyr, nor for himself, but he died for all the humanity. He died for all the sinners. He died for me and he died for you. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The blood of Christ is the believer's protection from the wrath of God, the curse of the law, and the damnation of hell. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's great news. Well, let's continue looking at the symbolism of the Passover. The lamb was to be roasted over fire, consumed with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, and the lamb to be completely consumed. Well, first off, why roasted by fire? Interestingly enough, we see that that was um, always the case with sacrifice established later. And some basic thought would be that it's probably faster than boiling it, and it kind of implies to, you know, everything had to be done fast and in haste. Um, it also provided for uh, just... Um, Complete consumption, right? As we read later, that whatever was left had to be burned. But listen um, to what I discovered according to the article in the Jerusalem Post. I read that boiling is an act of assimilation, while roasting separates. So boiling is an act that assimilates, while roasting separates. I found it very interesting, and so in view of that, I believe that symbolically, roasted lamb was signifying Israel's separation from the nation that enslaved them. Now, bitter herbs is the reminder and symbolic to the suffering of Israel. We remember that in first chapter of Exodus, we read that Egyptians made their lives bitter, and unleavened bread serves as remembrance to live in haste. So in verse 11, we see that the Israelites were to eat in haste and to be fully clothed and ready for a journey. 
Let's also not forget that Christ set us apart. He called us out. That we too were rescued from the bitter life of sin. And that we too have to be fully prepared for the coming of Christ. It is also very interesting that the phrase used in verse 11, you must be dressed for travel, which literally means that you, your waist girded should be girded so nothing prevents you from movement and long journey. That same phrase is metaphorically used in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 13, when Peter calls us to gird up the lines of our minds as if telling us that nothing should hinder us from following the Lord. So let's follow the Lord and let's continue to depend on Him alone for our salvation daily. So now that we looked at the symbolism of a Passover, I find it fitting to share with you my experience of actually participating in celebrating Passover. So how many of you ladies have a chance to celebrate Passover? Okay. Well, awesome. A few of you did. So let me tell you. First, when I got invited to the celebration, I was invited by my um, Messianic Jew friend, and, you know, and he gave me a fair warning that it's going to be three hours and this, you know, Jewish celebration. So I'm thinking to myself, well, first of all, it's going to be boring. Like, I was really skeptical because I'm like, I know Jesus. I'm a believer. I don't need that. So, you know, I was talking myself out of it, trying to really not get religiosis, you know, <laughs> about everything. But being a nice and obedient wife that I am, my husband suggests that we go. And so we went. <laughs> So, um, to my astonishment, ladies, my, I, it blew my mind. Literally everything that was read from that book, you know, the guidance book, cooped with my knowledge of what I already knew about the Lord, it just amazed me. And it literally, for three hours, the time flew by. I was literally going, that's it, that's it. Oh, my, like, you know, oh, my God. And so I left just being very thankful that I went. I left that first, you know, Passover celebration being just so thankful for God and for what Christ did for us. And that, you know, that is very true. And so in a sense, celebrating that Passover was for me an experience of a Passover. So now that uh, we all study through this account of Passover in this book of Exodus, if any of you are invited to Passover, go ahead and join. Get, um, or if you need the invitation, you know, let me know, because it will absolutely bless you. Do yourself a favor. Let's get back to the text. So in the following verses, we read about God executing judgment. Verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn man in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against the gods of Egypt. So these verses speak of divine judgment and ultimately paint the picture of divine judgment upon sin. It is very interesting that in the New English Translation Version, it says, I will attack instead of the word strike, picturing in a sense a war, a spiritual war. It serves as a yet another reminder that God's judgment is not just against the natural, but supernatural. 
the spiritual powers in the heavenlies, according to Ephesians 6.12. It is the fight against all the demons behind the gods of Egypt. In verse 14 and 20, we read the instructions given in observation of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your house. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. We already talked about this whole idea of being cut off from Israel, and you looked at it in your homework, and it was pretty significant. So why? Let's look at it. The Passover was on the 14th day of the month, and that what would follow is the week of unleavened bread. As verse 20 says, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. So for the entire week, once the Passover has begun, there should be no leaven or no yeast. All leaven has to be removed. So leaven represents sinful influence. And for the entire week, there would be no outside influence, which signifies that once the Passover has come, once they have been removed from Egypt, they are to leave Egypt behind. They needed to leave that influence behind. And of course, we see that that was commanded for seven days, and we know that seven is the number of completion. So there was a significance for the full seven days, not touching anything level, not being influenced by anything of Egypt is uh, what the Lord commanded. What a visual and a reminder for us too, ladies to leave the influence of the world behind, not to let the worldly ideas or sinful culture influence us. Once we have been saved from our sin, we ought to leave the life of sin behind. And so Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, writes, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And later he says, knowing that you have been ransomed, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ that is of a lamb without blemish or spot. And I take it, ladies, is yet another reminder that Exodus story is definitely our story. As we continue reading in verse 21 through 28, we see Moses giving commands to the elders for what has to be done in the lives to be, uh, for the lives to be spared, and he is establishing the remembrance of this day. As a result, we once again see people bow down and worship. This expression of gratitude and recognition of God, of Yahweh. They're going to obey the commands, and they will act in faith, yet they worship when we learn about the way out, namely our salvation, the reaction is to worship. Let us not forget it. Now we enter in the narrative of the story where everything that God said came to pass. So I think we really need to pause and reread these few verses. 
we need to see that what God says will come to pass. And we read in verse 30, And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. I mean, can we even start to imagine what it means like when there is not a single house left unaffected by the devastation? I think we can't. I mean, in my life, I have lived through a few pretty dramatic events, as I'm sure all of you have, um, from the Chernobyl nuclear disaster that had took away the life of my college friend due to its lasting, long-lasting effects, to the loss of a loved one. It's been 10 years since I last hugged my daddy. Um, to numerous terrorist attacks, uh, from crumbling of the living apartment complexes almost every night when I was in my 10, teen years, to the best land school terrorist attack of 2004 that took the lives of 300 innocent people, the majority of whom were kids who just came to school on the first day, and of course to 9-11, the day that literally shook the entire world. And so no matter how atrocious those events were, none of them yet were universal. None of them attacked every single household. So we can fathom, we cannot even fathom what it was like for that night on the Egyptians or anyone who has not put the blood on their doorpost. Can we fathom what it was like for the Israelites or anyone who has put the blood on their doorposts. So ladies, death is a reality. And whether the result of atrocious acts of terrorism or a disease or a tragic event, whatever leads to it, the reality is that one day death comes to every household and everyone's life. The question is, do you have the blood of the lamb? Do you have life to face death? The greatest news of all and the ultimate good news is that the death is defeated. Do you believe it? The famous verse memorized by many of us from uh, the Sunday school, it is John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. Later in the same gospel, we read Jesus saying in John 11:26, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? As I have invited us, ladies, to look at this passage with the eyes of the characters of the story, would you reread this passage again? Would you grasp the damning versus the redeeming reality of the two nations, what they have experienced on that night? And what is your reality? So now we come to the finality of this section where we see the fulfillment of what the Lord said come to pass. We see Pharaoh summons Moses and tells him to get out in verse 31. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. 
take even your flocks and your herds as you asked and leave, and also bless me. So no terms are being uh, negotiated by him anymore, right? And he even asks Moses to bless him. So undoubtedly, this uh, request of his does not necessarily point to his repentance, but it does show us his acknowledgement of Moses and his God as the ones who are victorious and as those who had the power and the resource to bless him. Only the one with the true authority may bless another. So Moses surely represented the supreme authority. He represented the great I am. So in closing, ladies, I would like to share uh, some truth and principles from today's lesson in Exodus and um, give us all some scriptural reference from New Testament. So principle number one, if you would, is that faith requires action. We have been reading this action-filled story, and like I already said before, everything that Moses did as the leader of the nation was done in faith, and everything that Israelites had to do was done in faith. And so we see that in James 2.17, where it says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Number two, there is no judgment without warning. I want you to listen to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. Number three, we learn that Death is a defeated foe. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. And finally, we see that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Acts 10, Acts 4.10, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Ladies, I hope that despite just, you know, this um, bloody um, encounter of the Passover, you know, and how we have been looking at the death, at the brutal death of our Savior and Him being slaughtered. In this uh, depth, there is a beauty. And I just pray and trust that each one of us will ultimately put our faith in Jesus Christ as our only way to God, as the only way of salvation. And I pray that for those of us who haven't done it, who are still looking around, who are trying to rely on our own strength and good deeds, may this historical proof that has deep spiritual truth will just sparkle our hearts with truth. And may we come to Jesus, receive Him, receive His death in our place, and may our hearts be uh, filled with joy. I also, in the recap, want to say that that will serve as the beginning of the new calendar in our life. So we all have an opportunity to start writing a new story, and let it be so. Let's pray. 
God, Lord, Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you, Father, for this beautiful part of Scripture, of the story, God, of you redeeming your people. We thank you for just seeing the faithfulness of Moses, Lord. We see how Israelites acted in faith, and we pray that, Father, we would do just that, Father. We pray that we will be encouraged to act in our faith, Lord. We pray that we will know deeply that you're always with us, Lord. I pray that today each one of us will understand that we are bought with the precious blood of Jesus. I pray, God, that you will give us just the humility, Lord, to face the reality of Jesus' body being broken for us and his blood being shed for us. I pray, Lord, that for those of us who just don't know Jesus, Lord, that today will be the day of new beginning. And for those of us, Lord, who know you, may we be encouraged, Lord, to live every day being ready. Jesus, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for your powerful word that is able to change our lives and change our eternity. Thank you for this day. Thank you for all the women. And I pray, Father, that you be with us as we go home. In Jesus' name, amen.